Thank you for tuning into the Freedom Church Podcast, where you can catch our Sunday sermon on demand at any time. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of the content that's shared every week at our local church in Round Rock, Texas. Here's this week's sermon. Good morning, Freedom Church. How are you doing? Turn around and tell your neighbor, hey, you look good today. Just tell them, you look good. Wake up. Tell them, wake up. Man, I'm so excited for what God is doing here at Freedom Church because of your prayers, your serving, your giving, man. Uh, man look, God is moving in our kids. We're being able to hire a new kids pastor, Pastor Taylor. She's been doing amazing. The youth got back from uh, youth camp. They're excited. We've ultimately we've renovated every part and every inch of this place other than the stage. That's the only carpet that's been stayed right there. And that's all because of your faithfulness, your giving, and man, and we've been able to give so far at a record pace to missions. Man, I'm excited for what God is doing, and I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. So this morning, I want to start by asking you this question. How many of you are worriers? Raise your hand if you're a worrier. You're a worrier? Okay. You deal with worry and anxiety in your life? Okay, here's another. How many guys never worry at all? Nothing ever stresses you out. Raise your hand. Okay, you're dismissed. Yeah, you don't need this message. Just rip off Philippians chapter 4 from your Bible and throw it away. Really, be honest. All of us struggle with worry, fear, and anxiety at some level. At some level. And some of us big more than others. Like, I'm a natural worrier. Probably one of the biggest challenges in my Christian life so far, one of the biggest issues that I deal with is this struggle of this trusting God and worry in my walk with God. And you might be a worrier if sometimes if you have a chest pain and you ultimately think it's like a heart attack, you know, sometimes this might be a cheeseburger, right? You might be a worrier if you DM somebody or you text somebody and they leave you on open and for five whole minutes and you're like, is that really, or this is what I think, you might be a worrier if Every time you go to bed and you hear just any sound in your house, you think it's a burglar at all times. You know, I heard this story of a woman who for years, she couldn't get any sleep because she was always worried about a burglar breaking into her house. It was an irrational fear. Her husband told her, uh, calm down. It's probably not going to happen. Look, we live in a safe neighborhood, but it persisted year after year, day after day. She couldn't go to sleep. She would always think herself, think to herself, somebody's going to break into my house and steal all my stuff. It never happened. But one night, as her and her husband were sleeping, they heard a noise downstairs. So he gets up, he goes downstairs, and guess who he meets? A real-life burglar. So after they kind of settled what was going to happen, the husband said to the burglar, "Uh, would you mind coming upstairs to meet my wife? She's been waiting to meet you for 10 years. Here's the reality of that story. A burglar can steal steal from you once, but the burglar of worry, fear, and anxiety can steal, steal from you year after year, day after day, night after night. And according to studies, 70 million Americans have sleep issues. They have a hard time sleeping. Why is it that at 3 a.m., it's the time that many of us wake up? Maybe you're awake by a dream. Maybe you're old and you have to wake up every because your just bladder's gotten old over and you can't hold it anymore or you drink too much water. But sometimes we get up at 3 in the morning, then fear and anxiety often grips us. And then what start, start, starts happening? We play in the what-if game. 
What if this happens? And what if that happens? And all of a sudden, you find yourself overcome with worry and anxiety. Anxiety starts coming at us like a West Texas tornado, sucking up every worry and turning it crazy in our minds. How many of you guys have ever found yourself staying up at night worrying about something in your life? You've stayed up at night worrying about something. Okay, let me ask you this question. How many of you guys have ever stayed up night stayed up at night worrying about something that never happened? Raise your hand. That's most of our worries. The Huffington Post ran an article by Dr. Joseph Goaway, who did research. He said 85% of the things people worry about most never happen. And he said of the 15% of the things that did happen, 79% of the people found that they could handle the difficulty better than they thought they could, or the difficulty taught them lessons worth learning. So this is what he concluded, that 97% of our worry is a fearful mind punishing you with exaggerations and misconceptions. Dale Carnegie, in his book, How to stop worrying and start living. He gave a simple exercise that's so powerful. He says, write down your worries every night. Write them down. And then check on them in six months. And you'll see how irrational your worries are. So if you're struggling with worry, I challenge you, try that simple exercise. And this morning, as we're continuing our series in the book of Philippians, Paul is going to tell us how to deal with anxiety to find rest and how to have peace in your life. So let's pray before we get into God's word. Just put a, just man, put up, put your hand over your, your heart and over your head because the Bible says that there's a peace that's there that'll guard our mind against fear and anxiety. Lord, I pray as we look at your word that it would come and it would be unpacked. And Lord, would you, we, we see the worries of, that we're facing right now. I want you to think, what's the thing that you're worried about? Say, Lord, guard my mind and my heart with your peace, God. Speak to me this morning through your eternal word. Amen. See, I really felt impressed by the Holy Spirit as I was preparing this message to pray for people who are having sleeping issues. Man, I know that there's people in this morning that you haven't been able to get a good night's sleep in a long time because of worry and anxiety. But I believe that God, at the end of this service, we want to pray for you that God wants to teach you through his word to find rest. Imagine, instead of going to bed at night, having your mind go crazy and being attacked by anxiety, imagine going to sleep and just going, ugh. Imagine having a peaceful night of sleep without any melatonin. Imagine you've been able to rest your weary mind. It's, av- it's available to us, and that's what Paul is going to talk to us about this morning. God wants to replace our restlessness with his rest. And if there's anybody that has credentials to give this talk to us, it's Paul. Let me remind you again, as we've been going through the book of Philippians, Paul is writing this where? From a prison. He's chained to guards that are walking with him every moment, and he thinks it's just a matter of time until he's executed and killed. Talk about fear and anxiety. And he's writing this letter to Christians who are being persecuted by Nero. See, their biggest worry is not, what am I going to wear to church? Or is it going to be hot or cold? Or, uh, or what am I going to eat afterwards? Their worry is, if I go to church, will I live or die? Will I see my husband? Or will I see my wife again? So I'm just saying that the Bible, no matter, even though it's an ancient book, it's alive and it speaks to us. So if they're facing this, surely God's word will speak to you, whatever you're facing today. And in Philippians chapter 4, We're going to look at it this morning, and we're going to start with verse 1. Because when most preachers teach about having peace and overcoming anxiety, they go straight to verse 6 and 7. 
This morning, we're going to start with verse 1 because the whole idea of peace begins here. That's the benefit of going through a book of the Bible like we're going through right now in its entirety. It allows us to see the passage in all its richness and not miss a single detail of what the writer is trying to tell us. So look at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel and whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Paul starts off this letter with some gracious pastoral words. You see Paul's pastoral heart. He says, I love you. I long for you. He says, you are my joy my tr- and you are my crown. Let me tell you, Paul loves people. And ministry is all about people. I've heard People tell me over the years, pastors tell me all the time, you know, pastor, I would really love ministry if it wasn't for the people. And I realize that those people don't know what ministry is. Ministry is all about people. It's one of the values of our church. Every person matters to God. And you can't love God without loving people. With all the mess, with all the stress, with all that thing comes from it, you cannot be a pastor. You cannot be a leader, a life group leader. You cannot be involved with just loving people. And here we see a glimpse into Paul's heart that he loves people. But then he, he also doesn't put up with the junk of people. I love that. He lo- walks with grace and truth. Look, he turns up, verse 2, and he turns up the heat. He says, I entreat this is an intense word here. It's a forceful word. It means, and we're going to come back to it later in, the, in this message, is I'm going to ask you to do something. Basically, it means urgently, do something about this. I entreat Judea, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Paul is pleading with these two ladies who are having some disagreement to make things right. Notice he says, I entreat Judea. And then he says, I entreat syndicate. He isn't choosing sides in this dispute. He's calling them both out. Paul is this equal opportunity offender. And I want to let you know, these are prominent women in the church. Verse 3 says, they labored side by side with him. And not only that they labor side by side with him, the Bible says their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. When Paul started the book, the the church in Philippi, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. He finds, he goes to the river and he finds a bunch of women that are there. He tries to go to the synagogue, but there wasn't a synagogue in that place because there had to be 10 men for there to be a synagogue. So he goes and he finds these women. And most scholars believe that these women were part of the church plant team. So they labored and they had worked with him in the gospel, but they've kind of gotten sideways. And here's what I've realized as I've pastored in different opportunities in different states. Sometimes even the most faithful servants of God can go sideways. It doesn't matter how you start, it's how you finish. Somebody that God uses profoundly, their hearts can get filled with bitterness or anger or offense, and then all of a sudden it takes them the wrong way. And, And what amazes me is Paul mentions them by name in the Bible. This is crazy because we got to understand when Paul would write a letter, he was writing the letter and somebody would read it and they would read about Philippians 1 and you can have joy and you have peace and talks about the great hymn of the church in uh, uh, Philippians 2 and then Philippians 3. He talks about, I strain forward the prize in Christ Jesus. But then all of a sudden, imagine your name is called out in church. That'd be kind of embarrassing, right? One commentator I was reading said this. If in a hundred years time, your name was to be discovered in an old document, What thing would you want the finder to learn? Wow. These names are always going to be forever kind of capsulated because of the cat fight they had in church. Why? Because Paul realizes the unity of the church is huge. 
And he wants the church to be unified. And these little things can stop the unity. So Paul says we got to deal with this conflict. And, and he doesn't tell us what the conflict is. But I don't think it's a doctrinal issue because whenever there was a doctrinal issue, Paul would put it on the table. He addressed it. He calls the Judaizers dogs in Philippians 3. So we know it's not that. And I don't think it's a behavioral issue because if there were behavioral issues, you look at the Corinthian church, he called those behavioral issues out by name. This, what I think is a trivial issue. Some little personal petty thing got into somebody's heart and they made mountains out of molehills. And they're stopping what God is doing. This is how the enemy attacks in churches. That's why we got to resolve conflict biblically. That's why we got to be unified. That's why we got to pursue peace. And here's the truth that Paul is teaching us here, that peace comes from being at peace with others. That nothing can cause stress in your life like being in conflict with somebody else. So let me ask you a question. Is there anybody in your life that when they walk into the room, your blood pressure rises? You're like, oh, them. Or oh, her. Oh, they get me so mad. I'm so annoyed with them. Here's what Paul's saying. You need to make every effort to make that relationship with them right, or you will have a lack of peace in your life. See, let me tell you what Jesus came. The gospel is all about restored relationships. The cross, God came to destroy, God came to restore our vertical relationship with him. That's called salvation. But the cross is also horizontal. God came to restore our horizontal relationships with each other, and he calls us into fellowship with one another. And we have to fight for that. And when you have unresolved relationships, there cannot be peace in your life. And your life will be full of anxiety and stress. Paul says the first place, if you're struggling with the lack of peace, if you have anxiety, if you don't have the peace of God in your life, he says the first place you need to look at is your relationship with others. Because you can't be at peace with God and be at war with anybody else. Is there somebody you need to forgive? Is there an offense you need to let go of? Is there somebody you need to make peace with? So let's pray right here, because we want peace, right? We've got to get in God's word. This is a hard thing, so let's pray. Holy Spirit, right now, show us. Is there any person in my life that I need to make peace with? He might be showing you right now. You've got to forgive them. You've got to let it go. You've got to release. So here, Okay, let's continue to go on. Paul's going to get on our business today, okay? And then he gives these instructions, verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And then in verse 6, he says, don't be. This is, this is the, if you have your Bible, pull this out. If not, go to the All Access Pass and follow along because we're going to be going through the Bible and going through, you can follow those. And it says, don't be anxious. Underline the word anxious. He's talking about this anxiousness about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In verse 6, Paul gives us a command and he deals with the heart of the issue. He says, don't be anxious about anything. See, that's really good advice, right? If I just told you this, don't be anxious. Let's go. Don't be anxious. Like, Pastor, that, that's easy to say. It's hard to do. It's like telling me at lunchtime, don't be hungry. I'm going to be hungry. No matter how much you tell me not to be hungry, I'm going to be hungry. So how do we come overcome anxiety? You're like, time out. 
You have no idea about my financial situation. You know, you have no idea about my health and the doctor's report. You know how no, you have no idea about what's going on in my marriage and my relationships. You don't know what's going on. I cannot live with anxiety. How many of you guys ever had felt like anxiety is a constant companion? And Paul says, don't be anxious. This seems like so irrelevant to us. But I want you to circle the word be if you have your Bible. Make sure you get your Bible out. The word be means continual. Paul is not saying. Man, you should not have any anxiety at all. But he's saying you should not live in a continual state of worry and anxiety. Life is going to hit you. Unfortunate circumstances and reports will come your way. But if you sit there and let it consume you, that's what's not healthy. Studies have shown that obesity, heart disease, Alzheimer's, and diabetes are all linked to stress. And Paul is not saying that you'll never have worries, you'll never have fears, you'll never have anxieties. He says, it's what you do with your worries, your fears, and anxieties that is the most important thing. And if there ever was a, mess, a, a generation, if there ever was a day, that, if there ever was a nation that needed to grab a hold of this message from Paul, it's ours. I came across a fascinating study by the World Mental Health Organization. This is what they said, that Americans were the most anxious people in the 14 countries they studied. They, they live with more clinically significant levels of anxiety than people in Nigeria, Lebanon, and Ukraine. And if you know anything about the state of the world, those places are under a lot of duress. So why do we as Americans have so much stress in lives? I don't got time to really think about it, but I think the number one thing is we focus way too much on ourselves. Too selfish. And Paul writes, and he tells us, and he uses this word for anxiety. I'm going to take you to a Greek word. It's really important to understand what Paul is saying. The word he uses for anxiety is the word merinato. It comes from two Greek words. One, merizo, which means to divide, and the word natos, which is the mind. To be anxious is to mean to have a divided mind. It's to have, it's to have rational thoughts and destructive thoughts at the same time. It's like, okay, yeah, this could happen, but then taking it to the worst. Oh, yeah, I got a heart pain. Uh, it's, I'm going to die. It's a heart attack. Oh, I got a headache. It's an aneurysm. It's taking it to the worst place. It's thinking the worst is going to happen. And to be anxious means that your mind is always divided. And what we find out, and culture is saying, that we are living in a culture where we have the most divided minds in the history of the world. And this morning, I want to give you an acrostic right out of this passage that the Lord gave me while preparing this message that will help you overcome anxiety and make your mind right again. And it's all in this passage. So if you want to have rest at night, the first thing that Paul tells us to do is we need to rejoice in the Lord. It's right in the text. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. If you've been with us in this series, you know that Paul keeps coming back to this Mess, every message in every series, he's talking about rejoice. He's talking about joy 17 different times. And you could tell that Paul is a preacher because he's always repeating himself. You could tell that Paul's a preacher because he's always repeating himself. Let me say that again. And what Paul is saying, instead of focusing on your problems, focus on God and what he's done for you. Rejoice on that. Like when you're worried, we should worship. When your heart is down, that's the time to lift your hands up to God. Because here's what I want to let you know. Worry and worship cannot coexist in the same heart. 
And notice what, what Paul's joy is in. Look what it says. It's in the Lord. It's his anchor. If you don't have an anchor, you will dangle in a sea of anxiety. Dr. Ed Welch wrote a book called Running Scared, Worry, Fear, and the God of Rest. And this is what he said. Worry is dangerous. When you find worries, anxieties, and fears, he says, pay attention. Worry and fear are more about us than the things outside of us. Wow. They reveal what's valuable to us. And what is valuable to us, in turn, reveals our kingdom allegiances. Worry and anxiety are like smoke from a fire. You have to get to the fire to deal with the smoke. A lot of people... They deal with the symptoms of worry rather than the root problem of worry. Doing that is like blowing away the smoke and not putting out the fire. In Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, your worries will lead you to your God. Anxiety and worry will always lead us to bigger questions. Here's a question it'll ask. Do I really trust God in this situation? Do I really believe God is all I need? Or do I think there's something else that will give me joy? It's easy to find the answers to those questions. When things aren't going well, I asked you, remember I told you this last week, what's the thing that gives you comfort? What do you rejoice in? Well, I'm rich, or I'm a good person, or I'm healthy, or I have a good job. If you find comfort in your marriage, your friends, whatever you find comfort in, you're rejoicing in. And what Paul says is find happiness in the Lord, not the things of this world. Christians should be the most joyful people in the world because nothing has given them joy and nothing can take away their joy. One of the things I always tell people is I love to read old dead guys because I just don't like to read people and pastors from our day because I like to read pastors that they said something 100 years ago and what they say still is relevant today. And one of the people I like to read is a guy by the name of Billy Sunday. He led Billy Graham to the Lord. He was a baseball player. And he always had these interesting quotes. And this is what he said. He says, don't look as if your Christianity hurts you. Look at your neighbor and says, don't look like your Christianity hurts you. He says, man, so many times it looks like we've been baptized in pickle juice. We just suck the lemon before we come to church. We should be full of joy. This is what Billy Sunday says this. He says, if you have no joy, he says, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. How happy are you? So the next thing he tells if we're going to find rest, the E in rest is entreat God for help. Like, Benita, what, the, what, what does entreat mean? How many of you guys have heard the word entreat? It's like, it was in the text before. Entreat means this. Webster's Dictionary for entreat means to ask someone earnestly or anxiously to do something. It's to implore somebody for their help. Entreat basically is a fancy word to say, ask God for help. And that's what Paul says in verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything. I want you to underline that next word. But in everything by prayer, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Underline supplication, underline thanksgiving, underline request. Paul is saying that we should redirect our worries to prayers. But, right there, you see the word but, right here it's a word of contrast. Paul says, don't be anxious, but pray. Another Bible word for but is the word cast. And that's why the Apostle Peter said it like this. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for us. So many times we carry our problems. It's like we put a backpack on and we pick problems up, the doctor's report and the bills and the struggle, and we're carrying it with us. And, and so many times we, we carry it with us to church. We go home and we carry it with us at home. What happens if I would go to the office and I would take my computer bag and I would take it with me everywhere I went? I never took it off. That's what one of us do. We are carrying all our problems everywhere. And God is saying, hey, take off your anxieties and cast them 
on me. One of my favorite hymns of the church is a simple song. It's called, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. I want to read you a couple of those lyrics. It says this, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. You know what? You're not big enough to carry your problems. You need somebody else bigger and stronger, and that's Jesus. See, those who leave everything in God's hands will see God's hand in everything. So how do we do this? I love Paul. He gets really practical. How do we leave our request to God? He says this. There's three types of prayer you're to pray. The first one he talks about is supplication. This is a desperate falling in knees. It's saying, God, I need you. I help you. It's like 2 Chronicles 20. When Jehoshaphat is surrounded by the Midianites, he prays one prayer. Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. He says, supplicate. Ask God for help. Have you ever been overwhelmed? Have you ever not known what to do? He says, say, God, I need you. It's a desperate cry. We can cry to God like that. But that's not the only prayer that we should pray. And this is where we miss it. He says, okay, start off with supplication. When you're anxious, but don't stay there. He says, put in some thanksgiving. That's where, this was where our prayers kind of lose their steam. Many of us, we say, God, I need you, I need you, I need you. And we said, I've tried that before, but it doesn't work. Well, Paul says, don't stay with supplication. He says, you got to mix in some thanksgiving. You need to add a healthy dose of thanksgiving with your prayer, or they're going to lose power, and you'll be given into worry. Thankfulness reminds us what God did back then, and he'll do it again. It's hard to be stressed out and thankful at the same time. So when you're blown overwhelmed, and you're blown away by everything that's going in, he says, yes, ask God for help, but make sure to thank God in the middle of it because if you can see God's faithfulness in the past, it'll be easy to see it in the future. So don't get caught up in the moment and you got to be able to realize that you have a whole lot to thank God for. And there Paul was in a prison and he was overwhelmed, but he could look at the faithfulness of God that met him when he was far from God, that provided for him, that opened the prison door before and God knew and Paul knew, God, I knew when I started this church that you opened up the prison door of the earth shook and lord you were faithful then and however you want to move today i'm good with it i thank you can you imagine the praise service that paul had in that prayer cell imagine how annoyed his prisoners were with him and then not only that he says there's requests these are specific prayers and let me just say this if it's big enough to worry about it's big enough to pray about does God care about it? If you care about it, God cares about it. So he says there's three ways to pray. Supplication, thanksgiving, request. And I know what many people are thinking because I've thought this before. Like there you go again, all these Christians. They use prayer as a cop out. Pray, pray, pray. I hate that man. Just give me something more. I need more than prayer. Have you ever been there? Here's what I found as I've walked with God over the years. Prayer is not, not a cop-out. Prayer is not a last resort. It should be our first action. Prayer is not a cop-out. It's a lifeline. And people who say, I need more than prayer, are people who have never understood the power of prayer in their lives. Let me tell you, in my life, I've had financial stresses. Just a couple of years ago, we were trying to build this property, and we were trying to, 
build a church and move forward. And God was, looked like he was leading us and guiding us. Then he went to ghosting us. And I remember calling some of the leaders in our, in our organization saying, hey, uh, we keep getting back these numbers and they've doubled. They said it was $2 million, Now it's going to be $4 million. Like, what do you do? And I remember being on the other line and they told me, pray. Like, I wanted to throw the phone at them. I needed more to pray. Like, give me something else to pray. I need to do more, but guess what happened? I realized in those moments that I began to pray with a $2 million pressure and a $2 million stress that God was able and God is faithful. And he didn't move all every day. It was a two or three years of learning to go to the Lord and supplicate. God, I need you, but I got to thank you. But God, I'm going to come and I'm going to give you requests day after day after day after day. And God was faithful. And look where he's here today. We've sold that other property and God's faithful. Sometimes God will change the situation. Sometimes God will change you. But here's what what I know if it wasn't for prayer I wouldn't be here you need to learn to pray to push through to seek God in your darkest moments because let me tell you when you are going to meet a problem that you cannot fix on yourself and in that moment you will realize that prayer is all you need it's all you need and it's all you have because that's what Paul is saying not only through relational challenges when people have left you and you feel like you've been betrayed and your heart is broken. you got to learn to pray. Through physical challenges, you got to learn to pray. And you got to learn to say, God, I need you. Supplicate. Then you got to thank him. Then you got to make specific requests to him. Because I, li- I was reading to a Yuri... This uh, brain type of, this brain doctor, and uh, her name was Dr. Carolyn Reef. She wrote, she wrote a book called Switch Your Brain On. And she says that there's this frontal part of your brain that kind of leads you into just survival mode and thinking. And we all kind of, our brain says, like, when a car's coming at you, it says, okay, I'm going to get hit. I'm going to get hit. I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. So that frontal part of the brain takes over. But he she said, something happens when you pray that it begins to override what your brain thinks. is renewal of the mind, and it gives you peace and joy. Let me tell you, prayer not only changes the situations, but more than anything else, prayer changes you in the midst of the situation. And he gives you peace. Paul says we are to redirect our problems to prayers. And then the S in the acrostic is this, and this is the hardest one. We are surrender, to surrender control to God. Let your request be made known to God. Give it to him. Lay it down. See, the, de- the definition of worry is owning your problems that God never intended you to own. Some of you need, re- need to repeat after me this morning. You need to say this. I hereby resign as the ruler of the universe. I acknowledge that you're God and I'm not. God, I give you your job back. Doesn't that feel better? Many of us have this attitude like, if it's going to be, it's up to me. I got to keep my family safe. I got to control the finances. I got to control my health. I got to control, I got to control, 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 control. And we're a bunch of control freaks. Let me tell you, life is beyond your control. So if it's, it's like this. Either you're going to be in control or God's going to be in control. You get to choose. So I want to take you, give you a little quiz this morning to see if you're a control freak. First one is this. Do you ever help other people drive? A, only when asked. B, only when they're doing it wrong. If you answered B, you're a control freak. Number two, number second question for you, if you're a control freak, how many unread messages are currently in your email inbox? A, triple digits, probably mostly junk. Or B, as of five minutes ago, zero, I better check right now. If you answered B, you're a control freak. You need some help. 
Number three, how do you react when someone loads the dishwasher improperly? A, like there's a wrong way. Or B, I weep for humanity as I reload it properly. I've told him a hundred times. Why does he not put it there? The dishes go here. The Tupperware there. Why? Why? Some of us feel that. See, let me just say this. If you control situations and circumstances, if you're a control freak, anxiety and worry will be your constant companion every day of your life. Because most of your life is beyond your control. And then T for rest is this. Think about good things. This is what Paul says. Finally, brothers, whatever is pure, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You can't control your circumstances, but you can control how you think about them. I like what Chuck Swindoll said this. Worry pulls tomorrow's clouds over today's sunshine. That's what we're doing. We're walking in the cloud because we're always thinking about tomorrow. And the stress that you're experiencing right here, it's not out there. It's going on in here because you're thinking of what could happen. But Jesus says, who holds tomorrow? Don't I hold tomorrow? Look at the birds. Have you guys ever seen a stressed out bird? They're just like all down. They're talking, oh. Why are we so stressed out? The stress that you're experiencing is in here. It's not out there. And what you fill your mind in with will determine your stress level. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian girl in World War II. And during World War II, her family took in Jewish families and hid them from the Nazis. When the Nazis found her entire family, they took them and they put them in death camps. Corrie lost her entire family. She was the only one survived. And she wrote a book describing her experiences and what she wrote, I have never forgotten. I've used this quote so many times. She says this, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. That's what Paul's telling us. Yes, I, I should be blown away. I'm in a prison. Man, I know you look like you should die. I know the world's going crazy. But guess what happens? Look what he says in verse 7. This is what can happen. You can have a peace of God that passes all understandings. And it will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. And if you want to have this type of rest, you need to learn to rejoice in the Lord. You need to entreat God for help. You need to surrender control to God. You need to think about good things. And when you do this, you will have an overwhelming peace. And Paul says this, it will guard your heart and your mind. Peace will guard your heart and mind. Wow. Does that describe your life? Like peace is guarding your heart and mind? Like, I don't think we understand what peace is, though, in the Bible. It's like, what do you, when you think of peace, what do you think of? Some of us, when you think of peace, you think of this. You think of a walk on the beach. Check this out. Check out this. Ah, be awesome. I want to go there right now, right? Take me to South Padre or take me to Florida. But since I started walking with God for 20-some years, God's given me a new image of what peace looks like. This is what peace looks like to me. Watch this. You might say, Benito, how can a picture of raging water, breaking rocks, wind, and storm be a picture of peace? Because if you zoom into this picture, you'll see. Check this out. There's a bird resting in the midst of a storm. That's God's promise of peace for us. Until we have this type of peace, 
a peace that passes all understanding, you will constantly struggle with fear, worry, and anxiety. A bird at rest. A prisoner about to be executed. Rejoicing. It's kind of like Jesus in the boat in Mark chapter 4. In the midst of the storm, all the disciples are freaking out. They think they're going to die. And Jesus, where do they find him? He's asleep on the boat. And Jesus gets up, and he got this fascinating little exchange with him. And he says this, you of little faith. Why does he do that? Not because they're afraid of the storm, but because they thought the storm removed them from the power of his presence. Who cares what was going on around them? Jesus, the one who created the sea, is with you. It doesn't matter what's going around you. It doesn't matter what's happening around you if he's with you. And look at the promise that Paul writes at the end of verse 9. Look what he says. He says, the God of peace will be with you. Freedom Church, he's with you. He's with you through the divorce. He's with you through the marriage problems. He's with you through the sickness. He's with you through the loss. He's with you through the heartache. He's with you through your worst times. He's with Paul in the, in the middle of a Roman prison. He's with the church in the midst of persecution. Notice this. God's promises peace in his presence, not the absence of problems. Unless you understand that, you're going to constantly be frustrated in your relationship with God. Early on in my faith journey, I was so disappointed with God all the time. I would say things like, God, I thought you were faithful. Why is this happening? I thought you were good. And God said, bro, you read the contract wrong. The world's standard of peace and my standard of peace is totally different. The world says peace is walk on the beach. It's lilies and roses and rainbows. I promise a peace that passes all understanding. That in the midst of loss, I'll be with you. I didn't promise the absence of problems. Actually, I said, in this world, you will have problems. But let me tell you what peace is. Peace is when God's presence is more real to us than the problems around us. That's peace. When you do that, when you have that type of peace, you can sleep in a storm. You can sleep with problems. And if you're losing sleep and worry this morning, I have a word of God for me. Here, here's a word. God's with you. When you're sleeping, he's working. Here's a word from you. God works the night shift. So why don't you resign from the night shift? Psalms 121.4 says this, that God never sleeps and he never slumbers. And here's what I realize: God can't work the night shift if you're working the night shift for him. So here this morning, here's here's the thing. You choose who's going to do the work. I want everybody to bow your head and close your eyes. Some of you, you're so worried about your job. You're so worried about the problem that you're facing. You're so worried about you. You you have sleep issues. You're having anxiety. Because you are taking problems that God never wanted you to take. Here's what I want to let you know. Sleep is an act of faith. It says, God, you're in control and I'm not. I'm giving you this problem. I accept your peace. I rest in you. I rejoice in you. I'm not going to worry about my kids. I'm not going to worry about my job. I'm not going to worry about the economy. I'm not going to worry about my Lord. I'm just going to pray. I'm going to do, but I'm going to trust God that you are in control. 
Thanks again for listening to the Freedom Church podcast. We hope that you were inspired and motivated to continue to grow in your faith. Don't forget to subscribe and share with others.